Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. In this podcast, I'm talking to Rachel Robertson, who has possibly the most interesting entry into public speaking that I've come across, which is to sign up for an Antarctic expedition and learn leadership skills, which you can then turn into a speaking career. It's a really interesting podcast covering a whole range of issues and topics. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking to Rachel. Rachel, it is wonderful to have you here today on the Fireside with Vox Gig podcast. So you started off in your speaking career, that is, started off in Antarctica. Tell us how that happened. <laughs> yes. And I think, firstly, thanks for having me. I'd, um, I'd love to sit here and say it was a strategic career move, but it, it, it wasn't. I ended up in Antarctica accidentally, the same as my speaking career took off accidentally. But Antarctica was just, I, I, I saw the job advertised in a newspaper and what so the job was for the station leader of, a, of an Australian station, so Davis Station. And what intrigued me was the Australian Antarctic Division, who was the employer, recruited for personal qualities and attributes, not technical. And so that, and so when I looked into it, I found out they actually recruited for resilience, empathy, and integrity, and you didn't need to know a single thing about Antarctica. And I just thought, what a fantastic way to recruit people because a lot of jobs require certain qualities like resilience, but you can learn the technical aspects. And so, I thought my, my big plan, my fiendish plan was just to apply for the job to get to the job interview stage so I could find out what the questions were they were using and I could copy them and bring them back to my organisation. It was only after I had applied for the job, I find out they don't have a job interview. They actually have a, a boot camp that goes for a week and I end up on this boot camp with 13 men competing for a job I didn't want and then they rang and offered it to me and I thought, you know what, I'd rather regret what I did and regret what I didn't do. And so that was, I ended up there. I don't particularly like the cold. I knew nothing about Antarctica. I certainly don't ski, but it was just, you know, it was an opportunity that came my way. And I thought, I can't, I can't regret this. I can't not take this opportunity. So it was purely just, yeah, an accidental expeditioner, I think. When was that? That was back in, in 2005. Yeah. I'm particularly intrigued by the criteria they were looking for because, um, do you know that astronaut Chris Hadfield? He was quite popular on social media. Mm. He wrote a book. He was the chap who got his face covered with water from his drinking pipe or something and then when he was outside the space station. And in his book, he talks about how there's this cliche that you think astronauts are meant to be these kind of space cowboys, but they actually select for people who are biased towards cooperation and collaborative problem solving. 
Yeah, I would totally believe that. And it was similar in Antarctica that we, the Antarctic Division, and I've been involved in the recruitment since since I joined them, um, we actually don't recruit people who are explorers or mountaineers, you know, those real rugged types who want to trek across a continent single-handedly and break records. They're the people typically when you think about Antarctic expeditions, you sort of, you you visualise those people. They're the actual, they're the opposite to what we want because a mountaineer by by nature has to be selfish. If you're climbing Mount Everest, then every Mm. decision you make is is going to keep you alive or not. And so, your decisions have to be around your own safety and that you, you need to be quite selfish and quite you know, concerned with only your own safety and mental health and physical health. That's the exact opposite to what we want in Antarctica, where you're managing a team of people and you're working alongside up to 17, 18 other people who are completely different people, really different people, and you've got to live together and work together and you can't get away from each other and it's dark 24 hours a day and you're stuck indoors in complete isolation for nine months. So, you, you don't want you don't want the rogue person. You don't want the, the you know, the big mountaineer who's going to do risky things and put the whole station at risk because our lives depend on our teamwork. So, the last thing you want is someone who's going to want to go and, you know, go down a glacier or, or take a, a quad bike out in, in the dark and, and just do crazy stuff. So, yeah, I, I've, I totally understand that. It's, it's fascinating the, um, the skills that you think you might need for a job versus the skills you actually do need. Surely, like equipment breaks and you know, resupplies are delayed by a month, this type, I'm just sort of spitballing here, but I'm guessing that's the sort of stuff that happens. And then, then you have this tight group um, who are probably sort of getting annoyed with each other day by day. So how do you problem solve? How do you lead? How do you problem solve in that environment? The, the biggest challenge for me was I wanted to create a, a culture and a team environment where people would speak up and actually deal with things because my my big concerns were... Yeah, not problem solving. Were, were things like people letting something fester and something build up until they exploded with anger or or spiraled down with depression because I didn't feel like I had the ability or the, the support mechanism to cope with either because there are no um, – there is no police force down there. There's no hospital. There's no mental health uh-huh. experts. So I'm it, you know, as the leader of that station, I'm it, I'm everything. And I thought, okay, I don't feel equipped to deal with that. So how do I stop it? How do I mitigate that risk? And so it was things like creating that environment where we, we would speak up. And that's where the mantra that respect Trump's harmony came from, that I didn't want them to keep the peace. I don't want you to keep the peace. I don't want you to turn a blind eye. To If equipment is broken, I expect that you'll do something about it. I actually want you to step in and I want you to step up. And I had to be really explicit about that because I, my big fear was someone just, just trying to keep the peace. And then they, suddenly they just got so angry and exploded and everyone was like, whoa, where did, where did that come from? I didn't see that coming from anywhere. Was so, this yeah. a learning experience that you sort of, you made some missteps at the start and then adjusted course? It, it was it was at our, our get to know you barbecue. So, I didn't recruit this team. I just got okay. given 17 random people. And my my plumber was telling a story about being in, from memory, it was either Alaska or Canada or somewhere in the north. And he was saying how cold. He said, oh, it was so cold. Um, the temperature, you know, you put your foot on a puddle and the water would freeze under your foot on this puddle. It must have been at least minus 21 degrees. Celsius. And then I had an electrical engineer from Germany who was standing there and he said, well, water freezes at zero Celsius. So, it must have been at least zero, not at least 
minus 21 degrees. Uh-huh. And that was the moment I thought, oh, gosh, th- these two are going to end up, you know, punching each other. Because <laughs> wow, <laughs> you know? okay. And, okay. and you, you'll appreciate this being being Irish. Like this, he was telling a story and telling a story is really important. And the last thing you need when you're trying to tell a funny story is, is someone correcting the detail of your story or wow. your joke. And that was the moment I thought, gosh, gosh, and we, we, can't, we can't come home. We can never come home. So what am I going to do here with this team? <laughs> Let's just back up. I want to back up a little bit but because, okay, some of the learnings that you've had and that you talk about and speak about and write about, you know, you can apply to any team. But at the same time, this is a self-selected team of kind of crazy people. Yep. <laughs> no offense. I'm sort of uh, reminded of... You know Ernest Shackleton? Yes. Because in Ireland, yes. we love him very much. And when he came back from Antarctica, he set up a pub called the South Pole Pub. Ah. He's one of our local heroes. I'm reminded of his ad for his expedition. Unfortunately, we have to account for the, the fact that it was early 20th century. So the, the ad goes, men wanted, as it was in those days, unfortunately. For hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Is that what your team was after? <laughs> yeah. that and, and I know that ad. I actually use that ad uh, in my presentations. It's the very first Wonderful. slide I put up. Oh, and, and peop- yeah, and it's the first slide I put up and takes, it still takes people's breath away. They look Isn't at it, it and they laugh. Yeah. And then I explain, you know, 5,000 men applied for that job. You know, 5,000 men thought that was a good option for them at that time. And wow. then I sort of flipped to the ad that I had because still in, in most of the countries that have stations in Antarctica, they still recruit through, uh, you know, advertising, general advertising through a, news, a newspaper um, or, or some of it's online now. But yeah, and it was fascinating with my team. So, even though they did self-select the reason for going to Antarctica was quite different. There were sort of three groups. There were a group like myself who went there for the experience. You know, I went there purely because I wanted to experience Antarctica and I wanted to see the wildlife and I wanted to see uh-huh. the Aurora Australis. There's another group that go there for the money because typically it's a well-paid job. It has to be well-paid because otherwise people wouldn't apply for the job. So, for sure. Um, even even our IT guys, you know, who are very competent, have to be very competent to work down there at the top of the sort of salary band for IT officers. And then there's a third group, strangely, who are there running away from a situation who are not happy with their life, uh, wherever their life is, and they want a, a change in their life. So, they see Antarctica as this exit from this, this place where they're stuck. And so, it was fascinating that even though we all put our hands up. And that's the only thing we had in common. The absolute only thing we all had in common was that we'd all put our hand up to work in Antarctica. But apart from that, we were so different across every everything on the spectrum, across sexuality, personality, age, gender, occupation, you name it. We were completely different people. The only thing we had in common was that we were all mad enough and crazy enough to, to want to live in complete darkness for a year. So, yeah. I'm thinking it's not so different to startup experience that I have had where you do have a sort of strange band of people who are doing something a little bit different, but it's not even that different from experiences I've had where, you know, I've got a promotion and then I was given a team, yep. a team that somebody else had pulled together. If you have any group of 10 or 20 people, there's always going to be some level of interpersonal challenge and there's always going to be huge personality variance. I think, yes, you did have the self-selected team, but it doesn't sound like you could say, oh, well, this is just too much of an outlier to learn from it. It sounds like, apart from the, you know, nine months of darkness <laughs> and the bitter cold yeah. and the isolation, 
maybe it was actually a really good learning environment because it sort of laser focused issues. That's yeah, and and you've hit the nail on the head. It, it, it laser focused, and I had no option. Was the other thing. So, typically, when I've managed teams in the past, if I had an, an issue bubbling up, I, I could afford to say, "Oh, look, I'll deal with that next week," or I'll contact the people in HR and I'll get some advice on this, or I'll you know do something. I didn't have that luxury down there. I had to deal with issues as they arose at the time, and there were things that that completely blindsided me. Things I had never thought about before and so it was like this like a a CEO role but it was truncated like 20 years of CEO truncated into 12 months and I got a lot of stuff right I got a lot of stuff wrong but it was basically because I had to deal with it I couldn't just let it fester because I I kept thinking this is their home so it's a workplace and I'm their boss managing their workplace but equally when they go home I'm still I'm in their in their lounge room. You know, I'm in I'm having breakfast with these people and and so if something's bothering them at work, then it's going to be bothering them at home as well because it's the the lines are blurred here. And so it was a really intricate dance between work and and home and yeah, that the diversity was incredible, but um yeah, and I had to constantly think about that. You know, this is their home, but it's also their workplace. And it was, yeah, it's a fascinating place to, to lead a team. And that, that's the big difference between, you know, the other stories of Antarctica where it's um, expeditions sort of skiing across from one side to the other. I was actually managing a workplace. So all of the rules and legislation that apply in a workplace apply down there, but I've got no sanctions and I've got no rewards. And yet I still had to manage the behavior and the performance oh of goodness. this team without any without <laughs> any sanctions or rewards. Wow. Without naming names or maybe amalgamating or sanitizing. Could you walk us through an example of the type of issue that you dealt with and the learning experience from that? I don't want to put you on the spot, but maybe no. to go as concrete as possible because this is it's really interesting. Yeah, one I got wrong. I'll share one I got wrong because uh-huh. it. Um, They're the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I don't regret it because I did learn from it. But it was it was a. I'll give you the background. It was a simple thing. It was uh, one of us has to help the chef every day. So we do have a professional chef, but obviously we don't have a kitchen hand or assistant. So each one of us, that's part of your contract. You have to work in the kitchen and help the chef when it's your turn. And you peel potatoes, you wash dishes, whatever chef tells you to do, mm-hmm. that's what you do. As a little reward for being, we call it slushy. So as a little reward for being the slushy for the day, you get to choose whatever music you want piped around the radio station for the for the, for the day. And it's only an MP3 player, but still we call it the radio station. Anyway, a couple of the guys decided that when it was their turn to, to be the, the kitchen chef, they didn't want to listen to music. They wanted to stream live sport from Australia. Right. So it was oh, either God. it was either right. rugby or football. Three people came up to me and said, Rachel, the rule is they pick music. They don't pick sport. And then the next day, three others came up to me and said, no, the rule is they can pick whatever they want. Now, there was no rule. It was just a little tradition that hangs around that's been there for 100 years and it was just a little tradition. So I didn't know what to do. So I, I canvassed all 17 people and I said, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? What do you reckon we should do? And I actually managed to turn this into the biggest issue to hit Antarctica in 58 years and I couldn't work out why. So I'm, I kept a journal and I'm writing in my journal and I'm thinking, they've gone crazy. Like Everyone's talking about this. It's the biggest issue. Everyone's talking about it. And I thought, they've gone crazy. It's cabin fever. And it was only by reflecting on my own leadership that I recognized, no, that's not cabin fever. That's you, Rachel. I got that wrong because the reason everyone had an opinion was because I asked everybody their opinion. And I always thought in the past that there's no 
such thing as over collaborating. You can't be, you know, overly democratic. You should get lots of opinions. And now I re- recognise that you actually can be too democratic and you can be too consultative. And what happens when you consult when you shouldn't is you, you a, you slow things right down. You slow the process right down. But b all of this happens and it escalates and elevates it into a bigger issue than it needs to be when, you know, in hindsight, what I should have done was just make the decision. Just make a decision that if you don't want to listen to sport on the radio in your office, turn off the radio, which was the decision I made in the end. But it was only through reflecting on my own leadership that I got that right because otherwise I would have just ascribed that to cabin fever. I would have said, oh, they're just they're gone mad. And yeah, so and I had to learn on the spot that that's that was me that got that wrong because I had no one tapping me on the shoulder saying dude you know you you got that wrong mate you, you really should have just made a decision you shouldn't have consulted with everybody and I, that blew me away because I, I always yeah. thought it was good to consult yeah if you rank highly on the agreeableness personality index <laughs> you know why can't we all just get along is the takeaway perhaps that as a leader you have to sort of be the bad guy a little bit for team cohesion? You do. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And, and that was really difficult for my team. And that, that came out in the um, the feedback for my, my performance review was conducted by a psychologist who met privately with my team and got feedback on the, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative. And the, the negative feedback was that they actually wanted to be my friend. They said, oh, Rachel's friendly, but we wanted to be her friend. And when I asked the psychologist, what does that mean? She said, they wanted you to be vulnerable and to say to them, you know, I'm feeling homesick or or they wanted me to turn to them for comfort. And I said, well, that was never going to happen. And I was, I was not, I couldn't be friends with one of them and not the other. I either had to be friends with all 17 or friends with none of them. And Mm. for me, keeping that arm's length distance was much safer and easier for me to just avoid any friendships. I was friendly with, with all of them, but I certainly didn't have a friend. I wouldn't call any of them. They are now, since we've come back home, I've got a few of them are quite, quite good friends. But during the expedition, I couldn't have favourites. I could not have even the perception of having a favourite. Oh, and so, yeah, yeah it, it, and leadership is lonely. No matter where you are, you can be lonely. But you, you do have to realise that um, – you know, sometimes you just have to keep that arm's length away from your staff so that when it when it does become difficult, it, it's a lot clearer than when you're, you're great friends and you go out and have a, have a beer together and then suddenly you have to sit them down and counsel them for something they did wrong. It becomes really difficult and really emotional. So, I made the decision that, yeah, before I went in that I wouldn't have any, none of them would be my friends, but I would, I would be friendly. Yeah. And I mean, I'd say that is just one of hundreds and hundreds of things that you learned either by making decisions and then seeing the consequences mm-hmm. or seeing how they played out. So you come home from Antarctica with all this <laughs> <laughs> shell shocked with all this stuff in your head and you kept a journal. Oh my God. Wow. So disciplined. I'm so impressed. Yeah. So what happens next? How do you end up on stages talking? About <laughs> the funniest thing, my, my boss, um, actually kept my job for a year. Well, he kept a job for, for a year, which was quite unusual. Most people have to resign from their, their current role and go and work in Antarctica for a year or 18 months all up. But my, my boss was fantastic and he said, look, you go and you'll learn lots of things and you'll teach them a thing or two and, and when you come back, come back to us. So, I did go back to my, my old job and my boss was actually the chairman of a charity at the time as well and he said to me, look, could you come and do a little presentation to my charity as a fundraiser? And I said, look, you know, you, you kept a job for me for 18 months. The least I can do to say thank you is this one presentation. So, I just did one presentation and in the audience was a gentleman from 
a speakers bureau. And I had never heard of a speakers bureau. I didn't know what they were, had never heard of them. So you hadn't done much public speaking at all before this? Never, never done right. it ever, ever, okay. ever. And um, he and so that first presentation, I had notes. You know, I had PowerPoint slides with lots of photos, but I was reading from a lectern with notes. And he said, um, "Would you like to do more of that?" And I said, "What? Tell that story?" And he said, "Yeah." He said, "There's not enough leadership speakers who've actually led. There's a lot of leadership speakers who are academics, and they can talk about the theory behind leadership and why people might behave a certain way." But he said, you've actually led and you've led in a difficult situation. So, you could do a Q&A and there's likely, you know, there'll be a scenario that you've, you've had down there. And he said, so, you've actually led. And he said, there's very few women who are on the speaker circuit speaking about leadership from actually the perspective of leading. And I said, oh, yeah, all right, I'll give it a go. So, I started doing breakfast and dinners. I presented a breakfast event or a dinner event and still holding down a full-time job. And then it just took off and it just, it sort of, the momentum gathered. And it just took off until eventually after, I think, three years, I decided to throw in my job and become a full-time professional speaker. And that's now what I do, travel the world, and I speak at 100 events a year all around the world. And it's the same, it's a similar topic. I, I tailor the content, but it's a very similar theme every time. Yeah, so opportunity. You make a living from speaking fees, uh, your books content that's a, like this is your full-time job absolutely yeah so my full-time oh. I, I, it's from speaking fees and the book was actually a it was a really late um idea so i had a, a business mentor or a coach a speaking coach and he said to me i've been speaking for five years and he said you need a book and i said why and he said that the actual word author is from authority like being an author gives you authority so as a speaker as well as having another product that you can sell back of room at, a, at an event and have you know, revenue from that. He said it gives you the gravitas and the authority because you're a published author. And he was right. And so the book I wrote in about six weeks and the book was just the keynote. It was I was getting the same questions all the time coming up in the, the Q&A session. So I thought, right, I'm going to write the book, which is just the keynote and then throw in a lot of those questions that keep coming up. And the book was a bestseller six in weeks. Australia. And I think, it, yeah, within... Yeah, six weeks. Yeah, it's, it's now on its um its eighth re reprint, and it, it's not it's not a fascinating it's not a brilliant book. I t trust me, it's a very simple book. But yeah, you I have think, to do Antarctica for a year, though. I guess so. Yeah, yeah it's I guess the we have stories. Yeah, I think it's the stories. How many pages? Just just estimate. Oh, this one I reckon is about three hundred and twenty. The first book, okay. yeah, the first book's an autobiography with with some leadership lessons in there. So even that was confounding to to my publisher because it's um it crosses genres. It's an autobiography, mm. but it's a leadership book, so it's a little bit of a puzzle for them how to pitch it. <laughs> that was a leading question. My my first book was about six hundred pages on a technical subject. <gasps> it big nearly destroyed me. Nearly destroyed my marriage. <laughs> I get that. And I wrote a subsequent book that was half the size, 300 pages, and was yep. much easier to do. So I get that. My advice to speakers, if you need a book, I think you're <laughs> right, absolutely. The book thing is critical, right? And that advice was absolutely spot on. Spot on. It's spot on. Write a short book. It's just the same value. It has the same effect. Don't write a long book. Short books are way easier. Yeah. The, the second book I've just um, published in April, I think, is half the, half the size. And it was, yeah, it was the same thing because the publisher was saying, you need a follow-up book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, probably. All right. So, I, the, other, the second book I wrote in September yeah, last year, and it's half the, half the size again. <laughs> Your books are published by Wiley. Oh, we share a publisher. Very good. Um, the first one was Leading on the Edge. That was the initial one, which was the yes, keynote. Yes. And then the new one is uh, Respect. Trump's harmony. Yes, that's which right. Which is this leadership stuff that we've been talking about. 
Yeah. Yeah. The book thing is really, really important. Let's go back, just focusing on the spectrum harmony and, and going back to your leadership experiences. There's a lot of people who have done well in sports and have led sports teams, you know, have gone on, on personal growth journeys in a sporting context who give fantastic talks and they have valuable experiences. Mm. But sports are artificial games with very clear rules. There is, yes, sure, there's personalities, all that type of stuff. And yes, there is the business side of sports. But at the end of the day, the primary performance metric is crystal clear with very low ambiguity, right? Mm. What you did in Antarctica and what a lot of people have to do once they start moving their careers forward is operate in a highly ambiguous environment. And I feel, I don't know where, what position you take on this, that a lot of these sports-based motivation and leadership lessons less relevant in those types of contexts. I think, and they are fantastic, but it's also why there's not a a lot of longevity in that career. So there's there's not too many professional athletes or sports people um, who are still speaking full-time or even half-time, even making half of their income from speaking 10, 15, 20 years after retirement. And I think the reason is, I call it the so what test. So you need, as a speaker, you need to pass the so what test. So you need every person in the audience who can be sitting there with their arms crossed going, so what? So what has this story got to do with me? How will this how does this change my life? How does this affect me at work? What are you telling me that I can take away and use to make my life easier at work and manage some of the <laughs> the recalcitrance I have to deal with at work? So I think the first thing is that unless a sports person has some tangible tools to pass that so what test, I think the story will get, particularly Olympians, um, the story will get superseded. Every four years, there's a whole new crop of Olympic athletes coming out who, who will take your place. So, unless you've got some really valuable intellectual property that you can commercialize, it, you won't have a career ongoing. So, you just hit it for the ter- first two or three years and make as much as you can and then move out. Uh, so, you have to pass the, the so what test. And I think the second thing is most sports and most athletes, it's actually quite a selfish pursuit because you, you're you thinking about your diet and your training and other people have to fit in around your diet and your training and your injuries and setbacks. So, their stories are a lot more around resilience and perseverance and, perseverance, and they're wonderful. But I think a lot of us who are just like me, just an average person, it's I find it a lot harder to relate to that because I can't, I'm, I'm not that disciplined. I love cheese and wine, so I would never be an elite athlete because I'd have to give up drinking alcohol and oh, eating yeah. cheese. <laughs> <laughs> that would be yeah, told about so, it, yes. Yeah, so I think a lot of us can relate more to stories around opportunity or you know, this is what I learned. So, this is what I learned actually at the coalface running a startup. These are the things I learned that I wouldn't do again. This is what I'd change next time. And we can relate to that a lot more than we can relate to an elite athlete who's from the age of seven or eight. That's the other big difference. Most professional sports people know from an incredibly young age, this is what I want to do. They know from like seven or eight years of age, this is what I want to do with my life. Whereas, you know, most people, I don't know, are like me, you know, I'm 50 and I still don't know what I'll do with my life when I grow up. So, I think most of us yeah. just do don't something we love. We have a yeah. crack at it and we go, I like this, I'll have a crack at it and then we stick with it. it we don't have that um, that laser focus that you need for professional sports and I think that makes it difficult for an audience person or an audience member to relate to the story. Yeah, they are a little alien. Yeah. Being more flexible and not being quite so obsessed with one thing is useful, especially, for example, in our current times where the whole conference scene has just completely turned upside down. 
Mm. And I'm really keen to to hear from a professional speaker how that's affected you and the place you speak and your experiences with virtual. Where on earth do you think this is all going to go? And we won't speculate about the virus itself and, you know, it, it may mm. pass, it may get worse. But I think there has been a shift, a fundamental shift anyway. But I'll just throw the floor open. Um, I'm very yeah, interested to hear what you think. Definitely. And, and like every other professional speaker, I had my diary, my calendar was cleared overnight. I thought the 12th wow. of March, I think it was. I had 30 or 40 events cancelled within you know 24 hours. And certainly international travel is off the off the radar for at least this year. So we've we made a decision my with my business, we made a decision around virtual events and and for a time, we could have had this band-aid measure where we just um, use existing platforms like Zoom or WebEx or Google uh, Meet or MS Teams, but we made a decision that we would use it as another product. So, we would have this hybrid sort of model where eventually I can go back to real life presentations, but equally, if you have the don't have the budget to fly me over to Europe to present for an hour and then fly me back, I could actually present virtually here from, from here in Australia and you don't have all the travel costs. And so, we actually invested heavily and built a broadcast studio because we just made a decision. It's not going to be a stopgap measure. This is actually, we'll, we'll look at it as an opportunity and this is an opportunity to create a new product along with the books and the online programs and the keynotes. This is another product that we can offer. And Australia being such a big country, often for me to travel just to the north of the country is, you know, two or three days of travel for one hour. And so, the, the budget is prohibitive for, for, for say, um, hospitals or schools yeah, or community yeah. groups. So, I really want to work with them because I think they need some support around leadership development and some, you know, some practical tools. But I can't, you know, I'm running a business as well. So, I have to balance the opportunity cost of me being on a plane and in cars for three days means I can't earn any other income. For this one job that you know is at the top of Australia or equally Europe, I, I was booked to go to uh, Germany for an hour. I think next week it was second week of July. Now that would take me. Now that's four days out of my diary for a one-hour presentation in Berlin. And so now the opportunities I can still do that presentation, but I do it from home. And and but I had to invest because when I started out speaking. It was stagecraft. We talked about your your stagecraft and your ability to hold an audience and engage an, an audience. You know, that's what kept me alive and kept me successful for 15 years. But now it's production values. It's all the technology and it's it's absolutely having a production value that, that the audio is great, the visuals are great, and people feel like they're at a conference, feel like or, or watching someone on TV that's not just me with a little camera on my, you know, my Mac and then they're sort of looking up at my chin. So I had to get expertise. I had to buy in the expertise from AV editors and people who understand a vision mixer. But they probably were available. I mean, they, they had nothing to do either. So. <laughs> you know, if you're going to set up oh, a you studio, now's a great time, right? It was perfect. And, and asking advice on microphones and lighting and green screens and all this stuff that I'd never thought of before. But yeah, I just made the decision that rather than just do some sort of patchwork you know, thing, if I'm going to be charging professional speaking fees and I need to offer a professional speaking product. And so, the production values are everything at the moment in the, in the virtual world. You need to be able to guarantee reliable, great production quality. So, so people say, so yeah, that's worth, oh, it's worth investing in that. AV is kind of a backup career now, right? <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I know things about AV. I didn't, I never even knew. Like, <laughs> and what colors I can and can't wear in front of a, a green screen. 
<laughs> oh yeah, of course. All that's yeah, that's right. All that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people listen to this podcast are kind of starting their speaking career and or they may have kind of caught the bug and they're thinking, well, you know, I can don't do the day job anymore. I could do this. It's a great bug. Uh, you know, I get to uh, travel, uh, meet new people, <laughs> you know, get audience feedback. But now there's a lot of talk in the industry about events. Even when they start coming back, they'll be hybrid. So there's going to be a lot more virtual presentations anyway. But I'm interested in your new business model. So how does that work? How are you making virtual pay? One of the, the, the tips I can offer is we're doing sales calls. So if someone's inquiring about the work, if someone's listening right now and says, oh, great, I'd love Rachel to come and talk to my team about leadership, we actually undertake the sales call on the platform the client is using. So if they're using Zoom, we'll actually do that sales call and it's an obligation-free sales call on the platform. And we're finding that that is reassuring people because if they're putting their hand in their pocket and they're paying you know thousands of dollars for a keynote speaker, then we need to make them feel comfortable that they'll get the quality that they're after. So that was one of the things that really helped us. So we you could we we tried, I think initially in March and April, we wrote about it and I put a demonstration video on my website and I talked I put out a newsletter saying I've got this great big, you know, broadcast studio and these are all the gadgets. And it just wasn't enough. People need to see with their own eyes and and particularly the interactive component. So we do polling, we do a live poll and I need to sit with the client and they need to eyeball me and, and I have to show them, here's how we do the polling. This is, we will ask your, your delegates this question, they will vote uh, and then we'll show the results to make it interactive because in the old days, you just put your hand up in the audience and put your hand up. And so we've found that having the actual sales call and, and Every time, 100% of the sales will convert if we do it on the platform. There's either Zoom or WebEx or whichever platform they're hosting it. And I think that's part of it. Is the, oh, And it's a, a lot more time. effort for me. Yeah. It's a lot more effort for me because I have to fire up the studio. I have to get an AV person here with me to help me. And it's a lot more effort. But I just think it's just the price we pay now in the virtual realm to, to reassure people that this is going to be good quality. Your people will appreciate this and they'll love, you know, it's full screen size and there's music and videos and it's it's a real experience. It's not just sort of sitting at your computer again for another meeting. I've seen a wide range of experiences with this where people are using Zoom and or they're using things like Crowdcast or Livestorm. Mm-hmm. Like what do you use? We're just getting into the weeds here now because I'm 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 trying to figure out how to do all this stuff myself. Yeah. Do you use a particular software platform to do the AV delivery? No. We we how do you fit in, you know, if you're part of a conference? We we discussed that. Yeah, we discussed that with my team. And luckily for me, I'm married to a CIO. Um so oh, uh, yeah, he did some audio engineering in uh, his early life. Um, so we actually sat and talked about this, about which how we do this, you know, which platform do we use, which software do we use. And we decided, we, we actually did a flip. We just, First of all, we said we will host it on our software. And then we realized we carry all the risk if we do that. So it was part of the risk mitigation was to say to the client, we will use whatever you use. So whatever software you use, right. we will use it. And we, we, we still get something we've never heard of. We had one the other day, I think it's called On24. It's a new software oh, we yeah, haven't used yeah. before. Yeah, it's a big one that's sort of coming out in conferences now. Rising Star. And then yeah. It's the, yeah, so the onus then is up to me and my team to research it. So whichever one it is, and we rehearse on it and research it so that when we get to the event, 
we're really comfortable. But the onus is on the client. So we say, you need to send out the invitations. You need to host. Uh, so say we're talking about Zoom, you send out the invitations, you host, you're the host. You have to mute everyone and you have to turn off the videos. You have to explain there won't be a chat function for this because it's a keynote presentation. There won't be a chat function. There will be live polling later on. So the host, we give them a script and the host then goes through all of the the technical elements with their audience. And what that does is a couple of things. It takes the risk out for me, but they've also they'll have an AV team on on standby. They'll have their own IT section or department or team available so they can troubleshoot. The other thing we do is we get online 30 minutes beforehand. So if I had a, I was presenting at one o'clock, I would make sure there was someone at the host venue at 12.30 to talk to me and troubleshoot any issues with sound so that when they, you know, do the introduction, please welcome Rachel. And I'm sort of walking on stage uh, virtually that bang, we, we know it's going to work. We know everything's working because it, you just can't afford to, to sort of chime in at the last minute. And then suddenly, you know, last, last week yeah. I had, uh, it was batteries were flat. I had a, a, a lapel mic. No, I had a headset mic and a battery pack and the batteries were flat. And it was as simple as that. I just had to put the batteries in, but we only worked that out when we were doing the 30 minute, like a sound check, like a real event, you do a sound check. We're doing the same in the virtual world. We're doing a sound check. Okay. Wow. Okay. So is this, delivery to live audiences where you're up on a screen or is this delivery to a virtual audience or is it both? It's both. So in cities where there's no limitation on gathering, so cities in in the US, for example, Mm. where they can still have, you know, 100 people together, it's they'll have a, a cohort in one room. So, say we're presenting to a government department, a lot of the government departments have staff still coming into the office each day doing the community service type roles with, you know, maternal health or childcare. They're still coming into the offices and they've got a large cohort. And that's why it's. I think this is here to stay because I think it's the most equitable way to present a conference when you've got staff in the office and you've got staff working at home. So, we'll still use something like Zoom and there'll be one room where there's lots of people and and we did this on Monday, there was one room where there were lots of people sitting around a boardroom with one screen and equally there were another, I think there were 70 people all together. So, it was another 40 people at their homes who were all linked in um, by the technology, by Zoom. So, it, it's both. And I think, you know, that's the way of the future, particularly mm. when we're talking about international events where the cost of travelling uh, is is huge and it's you know in time just simply in time not just money and, and I think a lot of businesses will say well I don't want to go and send twenty of my staff off to this international conference halfway around the world but I don't want them to miss out either and I think all the conferences now will have different sort of tiered tickets so you can have a real life ticket where you go to the three days of conference and then you'll have you know a virtual ticket that lets you into the sessions and there might even be a network session a virtual networking session but I think that's the way of the future just just because it's you know the most fair and equitable if you can't send so many people off you know this way you can everyone Absolutely. can chime in i mean i think we're discovering a hidden benefit there yep. how do you handle energy cuz you know you speak on stage in front of a live audience you you gain energy from the audience it's been very difficult for me speaking to a screen or a microphone to generate the same vibe how are you dealing with that yeah it's really difficult isn't it and I've always I've always been conscious of energy because I'm I'm an introvert and so for me being on stage 
I mean, that, that's hard enough, but coming off stage and that small talk, or even if I'm presenting at a, a dinner event and I have to talk to people at the table and then get on stage, and I find that really difficult because I am an introvert, so I, I need time on my own. Leave me alone. I just want to speak. That's it. So, I'll, I can actually, I'll give 100%. Yeah. Honestly, I'll go to an event and I will shine and I'll give them, I'll be there at 6 o'clock and I'll be there, I'll be the last one to leave at 11 o'clock and I'll give them everything and then I'll walk back to my hotel room and I'll just collapse in a heap exhausted because yeah. I'm absolutely exhausted because it just drains all my energy. So, I've always been conscious of that. And I think in the virtual world, the difference is just having that confidence that I know my content so well that even like comedy, and I had professional comedy writers write a lot of my comedy elements. So, I know and I know they laugh. I know people find them funny because I've delivered this keynote 1,600 times and I know where people laugh. But it's really difficult when you, you, you say your zingy one-liner and, and you don't want to laugh yourself because that looks a bit dorky. You know, you're laughing yeah, yeah. and there's no one laughing with you. You just have to have the confidence and I think just pause. The other thing is the pause. You just have to pause briefly and, and say, here's your one-liner, pause and then move on. Whereas in a live audience, often that pause could be up to three or four seconds and you just let that roll of laughter go through the crowd and it's really wonderful. You don't have that in virtual. So, I think you have to just accept that and understand it. Just trust that it works. You know it works. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try any new content out virtually. I'd try it out on friends and family a few Got times it, yeah. before I, yeah, just before I did it on a virtual end. Is that a missing piece of the technology? Is, do, do the technology providers need to find some way to give useful i mean having a like a, a little mo, you know a mosaic of loads of faces on zoom doesn't work at all is the onus on the technology providers to, to innovate here and come up with some way of giving speakers feedback yeah, i think there is there is scope there for some sort of innovation around getting that crowd feeling or getting the uh the momentum that you get when and the energy you get and i've when i've talked to stand-up comics uh and I, they'll say to me if you ever get a chance to check the layout of a room if you're presenting always go with theatre style seating. Don't go with cabaret around round tables. And I said, you know, why is that? And they said, well, if people are sitting in a round table, like a banquet table or cabaret style, um, they're a bit more self-conscious laughing. But when you're in theatre style, so that's why all the big comedy specials, they're in large theatres and they're in rows. And they said, you will hear someone laughing behind you or in front of you or beside you. And you hear that laughter and you will laugh with that laughter and mm. it, builds, it builds the laughter. Whereas if you, you're the only one laughing, you get really self-conscious and you think, oh, I can't it's hear like it. my weddings are always so rubbish because you're, you're stymied as a speaker <laughs> from the start because of all these tables. You're sitting, sitting at a round table with people yeah. that aren't laughing. And so I think, yeah, the technology can help there. We're, we're trialling it now in um, Australia. We have the option with our live sport, our Australian Rules Football, which I'm mm. sure many of, of your people will know because you have your Gaelic football. Absolutely, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you'll know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll know the Australian. So, what they've yeah. done is you have an option. So, they you have the option to put the crowd on or the crowd not, not on. So, you can actually watch the football without the crowd and then you hear the voices of the players talking, which is fascinating. But equally, you can tick a box um, on your on your TV and you can have this, they mimic the crowd noises and it's not over the top, to be honest. I thought it would be a bit, uh, yeah, it's like canned laughter, like that canned laughter we used to have on comedy shows that I hate. And I thought, It'll be the same thing, but it's actually not. It's actually a very gentle and it's timed really well, sort of like a, ooh, ah, and it's, it's not bad. And I think there's a, some sort of scope there for, for conferences, certainly to give that, that scale. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting. Yeah. We're going to see so much happening. Yeah. Definitely in the next two or three years. 
things are never going to go back to where they were, I don't think, because this, there has been a democratization, I guess, is that the word? It is. Of the conference things where there, it, it's opened up to so many more people because if remote is acceptable, you can do it both on the speaker side and the audience side. Yeah, it's democratic and it's also, it's reliable because we're not relying on planes, you know, being diverted or delayed. We're not, um, our speakers won't turn up jet lagged because they've flown halfway around the world. So I think it's a really, it's a really great option. And I think, I think it's here to stay for sure. Absolutely. It's a strange time, but I, I'm kind of excited for the future as well. Obviously, we have to struggle through the current really awful time, but um, it, it may well lead to an interesting new world for speakers. Rachel, we have come to the end of our time. In fact, we've gone way beyond it. <laughs> I'd love to go back and talk about Antarctica a bit more. Thank you so much. This has been really, really fascinating. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Wonderful stuff. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com who helped make this podcast possible till next time remember take a deep breath pause and step forward <laughs>